You can start making your way in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, which is on page 1157, if you are using the Bibles that we provide for you. If you're flipping there, you can keep your eyes open. If you're not flipping there, pray with me as we ask for God's blessing on this service. Father, we want you to work through our limitations this morning, our limitations as hearers and limitations of the speaker. We ask for your word to be powerfully delivered and received in spite of us. And we're so thankful for the cross and the opportunity that all of us have, not just the preacher, but that all of us have to proclaim Christ crucified this morning. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Well, after a failure, it is very common to be afraid of trying again or to keep going. I've had a lot of fun playing on the church softball team this year. I went into the season not really knowing how to play softball, and uh, those of you that have been to our games and seen me play, that's not very surprising to you that I have just now learned. I've had a few comical struggles and even failures. Uh, One of my first times at bat this year, I struck out. This is slow pitch softball, the underhand throwing, the the kind of meatball throws that dads give to their five-year-old sons in the backyard, and I struck out. (laughs) Now, people do strike out from time to time, and sometimes there are crafty pitchers and all of that. It wasn't the case for me. I just couldn't hit the ball. A little embarrassing, but uh, maybe if I got one of those tees, that would help me out. Just set the ball on there and let me hit it. My hitting has improved, I think, Uh, but in the outfield, I'm as bad as ever. One time I saw the ball coming, to my spot. They, they put me in the place where the ball doesn't come very often, but the ball was coming to me. I had plenty of time. I stuck my glove out, and it just whizzed right past my glove. <laughs> Another time, the ball came high. It was coming right. I didn't even have to move. I just had to stand there. I'm right underneath it. I got the shaky knees going a little bit. Stuck my glove up, and lo and behold, it does go into my glove so that it can bounce out, and then I have to chase it down. During that same game, right after that happened, I was in the dugout. Obviously, that's where you belong after that. I was in the dugout, and one of our middle school teenagers was playing catch behind the dugout, and someone hit a foul ball. It went in his general direction, and he catches it. It was, it was Jasper, the guy who got baptized, and he catches this foul ball. I was like, man, I wish I could do that. I'm going to get replaced by him. And Of course, he was playing catch with his mom, who also seems to be a better softball player than me. So all of that is going on. Why am I telling you this? Well, our failures make us afraid, don't they? That's a silly example. I'm not good in the outfield. I know that. But right after I miss a ball, I probably feel worse than I actually am because I notice my failures. And what happens when we think too long about our failures? We get afraid. That next fly ball comes, and instead of thinking, here's my chance, we think, oh no, not again. (laughs) It's not helpful. That's not healthy. And and here's the kick. Feel this way. Feel this way. Not only when we actually fail, but also when we just think we've failed or feel like we've failed. 
In our text today, in the situation that the Apostle Paul finds himself, he could easily feel like a failure. The title of this series has been, How Does Ministry Happen? We're seeking to examine the ministry of Paul and his companions at the Church of Corinth so that we can apply it to our ministry today. And we have a clear view of Paul's philosophy of ministry because he's been forced into this position of defending himself from critics who are attacking him. They're the false apostles at Corinth. It seems they've been publicly questioning his integrity and his love and his genuineness as an apostle for the risen Christ. And I would imagine that that would be very disheartening for Paul. He loves these people. He helped plant this church. And now they have turned on him to attack him. I would imagine that if we were in his situation, we would be tempted towards the sins of anxiety and fear, bitterness, discouragement, wondering if it was worth it, and maybe even wondering if if we did something wrong, if it's our fault somehow that all of this is crumbling around us. And, And we may be scared to continue working toward what we know we have been called to do. But the glorious and transforming new covenant ministry that we have been called to is meant to alleviate those fears so that we can partake in ministry that is courageous, something that stands up and fights against the fear of failure. So follow along in your Bibles as we read the first six verses of this chapter, 2 Corinthians 4 starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, in the face of Christ. I want you to remember that phrase in verse 1, we do not lose heart, because it's the phrase that our big idea this morning is born out of. The big idea is that God wants our ministry to be courageous. And I've been urging you as we think about how ministry happens, not to have too narrow of a view of who is in ministry, but I also don't want you to have too narrow of a view of uh, what ministry is, because our ministry isn't only churchy stuff. The backpack outreach, vacation Bible school, fall festival, Easter Sunday, all of those things are great outreach events that you should be part of and supporting in some way. But our life of ministry isn't fulfilled in only those type of things. Every one of you who bears the name of Christ and bears the name of Calvary Baptist Church by being a member here, is called to be salt and light wherever you go. And by salt and light, I mean what Jesus meant by salt and light. Salt 
enhances the flavor of something else. Light makes something else visible. So to be salt and light is to live a life that's not about you, but is pointing towards someone else. And his name is King Jesus. Our ministry isn't just what goes on in this building. Our ministry is our redeemed life. And God wants that ministry to be courageous wherever you go. So today, from our text, we're going to look at the three callings of the courageous ministry. And when these are embraced by faith, they protect us from the fear of failure. The first calling is found in verse 1. We are called to be fueled by mercy. Therefore, since we have this ministry as we received mercy, we do not lose heart, the verse says. Do you see the cause and effect in this simple verse? The cause is the realization that we have our ministry as a result of mercy and that our life has a purpose because of mercy. We were dead in our sins and on our way to hell, and we were not only rescued from a meaningless path, but we were also placed on a path that's actually going somewhere. We don't merely have freedom from hell, we have a reason to exist. We have a ministry, a purpose, because of the mercy of God. That's that's the cause. The effect is at the end of the verse, when we realize the mercy that we've been shown, we do not lose heart. That's the effect or the result of the cause. We don't lose heart. Your translation might say something else. It might say, uh, we do not give up. It might say, we are not afraid. Uh, And those might sound a little bit different to you, but I believe the best way to think about this phrase, we do not lose heart, is in terms of fear. And I believe that because there's references to fear all around this passage. In the context where this phrase is found, he's talking about fear. Look, look up just a few verses in your Bible to chapter 3, verse 12, where Paul talks about being bold with the new covenant gospel ministry. Bold, not afraid, courageous. And even if you were to look down after our passage to the end of chapter 4, in verse 16, Paul uses the same phrase again, we do not lose heart, although outwardly, We are wasting away. So yes, I believe he's talking about fear in chapter 4, verse 1, when he says we do not lose heart. But coming back to that cause and effect relationship, the cause is realizing that our ministry comes from mercy. The effect is courage. A ministry fueled with mercy is a ministry filled with with boldness. Let me say that just one more time. It's on the screen. It's in your notes. A ministry fueled with mercy is a ministry filled with boldness. The the fuel that you use matters. And this is true in everything. We know, of course, that it would not be good to put diesel into your gas-powered car. It would be even worse to put gas into your diesel truck. That's not, that's not a good combination. The fuel that you use matters. Here's another example. I did a, I did a lot of uh, long distance, maybe you'd call it mid-distance running in high school, cross-country, track, that type of thing. One year, our cross-country team was on the way to the state meet. This is what we had trained for. This was the climax of our cross-country season. And uh, on the ride to the state meet, one of my teammates 
ate pretty much an entire bag of these. I don't know if you know what these are or not. If you don't know what they are, I should say, I should clarify, an entire family share size, like not just a single pack, uh, on the ride to the meet. Uh, if you don't know what these are, just think gummy bears, that, that type of family, okay? Uh, let me ask you an obvious question. How do you think he did at the race? <laughs> it's not the best fuel for a long-distance runner. How do you think our life of ministry will run if we try to operate on a fuel that isn't mercy? How do your kids respond when you're harsh with them over and over and over again? Or what happens uh, to your spouse when you have a critical spirit? Or what happens in your own heart when you feel like you are being criticized over and over and you just don't think there's any mercy coming your way? What happens when we feel that way? Well, that's, that's what life looks like when it's not fueled by mercy. But, but how does it actually work? Because we, we can understand what the text is saying. It's one thing to see that there is a cause and effect there. That's what the text is saying, and it's saying it plainly. But how does, minister, or sorry, how does mercy actually produce courage in our ministry? How is it that mercy makes us brave and bold? Well, I would make the argument that if you have this view of God and this view of salvation that isn't saturated in mercy, like if there's any part of you that feels like you deserve to be saved, maybe there's little something good in there before you were saved that was worth saving, um, you don't need the mercy, at least, at least not as bad as uh, someone else needs the mercy. If you've done that, you may have accidentally diminished your need for the Savior. You may have actually lessened the value of what Jesus did in your own mind. And if you're living and thinking that way, you probably won't feel the need that other people have for the Savior. And if you don't feel their need, if you don't sense how lost they are, if you aren't motivated by the mercy of God to save totally helpless sinners, good luck with evangelism. How are you going to proclaim the good news when you don't understand the bad news? How helpless we were without the good news. But if you do have a healthy and robust biblical view of God's mercy in saving us, as you mature in your faith and realize just how much of a sinner you were, man, that makes you motivated to see other people taste salvation, doesn't it? When you realize more and more what Christ has done for you, that's how mercy produces courage. When you understand your great need and you understand that Jesus saved you when you didn't deserve it at all, and you couldn't save yourself at all, when that happens, God can create a love for others that overcomes fear. That's called boldness. That's called courage. That's called a ministry that is fueled by mercy. That's our first calling in the text. The second is that we're called to focus on the word. That comes from verse 2, which says, But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So in this verse, there's three descriptions of what we reject, and then one description of what we embrace. The three rejections all have to do with 
a deception of some kind. The first is that we reject the things hidden because of shame. ESV would translate this disgraceful and underhanded ways. So there's no trickery going on in Paul's ministry. They're not hiding any ulterior motives in their ministry. If you look back to the final verse in chapter 2, you would see there that uh, Paul says, we are not like so many peddling the word of God. You can almost hear Paul suggesting that it's those false apostles who are the peddlers. The false apostles who are attacking his ministry are the disgraceful, underhanded ones. But he has rejected the things hidden because of shame. And the second rejection of Paul is walking in craftiness. A similar idea with this one, but other words come to my mind. Words like cunning and trickery and manipulation, scheming and deviousness. Paul is trying to communicate that his ministry is removed from any craftiness or any attempt to trick someone into believing something. This final rejection, though, is probably the one that is phrased the strongest. He rejects adulterating the word of God. This is not the context where we normally see the word adulterating or adultery, is it? It's almost used exclusively with breaking of a marriage covenant uh, so that many of us don't realize the essence of this word, which has to do with addition, adding something. Let me give you a benign example. Sometimes adding something in is okay. Just uh, personally, I like the drums, right? I think that the drums add to certain songs. I like having them in the background. That's just an opinion. I don't know about music, but in my opinion, that is a good example of addition. Let me give you another example. Raise your hand if you're a coffee drinker. Any coffee drinkers out here? How many of you need more coffee right now? Don't answer that. How many of you like your coffee black? So you black coffee drinkers, you coffee purists out there, you might say that uh, someone who puts creamer into their coffee is adulterating it, right? That's the essence of this word, adding something that shouldn't be there. So you see what Paul is saying about his refusal to adulterate the word of God. He doesn't need to add anything to it. It's perfect and pure the way that it is. Paul has such a high view of Scripture. That's what I want you to see in verse 2. He has a great desire for his life and his ministry to be known as a life and ministry that exalts God and what God has said. So those are the three rejections. The things hidden because of shame, walking in craftiness, and adulterating the word of God. Those are rejected. But what does he embrace? Well, we embrace the manifestation of truth. You see that in verse 2? I'm not making this up. This is coming from the Bible. He embraces the manifestation of truth. The call to focus on the word is the call to love truth and to love communicating truth and to love being part of a church that is committed to communicating truth. There's no hiding. There's no trickery. And we as a church need to be constantly evaluating if we are giving proper focus to the word of God. Someone might say, what do you mean we need to evaluate? We're, we're a fundamental Baptist church. Of course we're going to be focused on the word. And to that I would say, it takes a lot more than having Baptist on your sign to guarantee 
that you have a biblical worldview through and through. It takes a lot more than believing in traditional marriage and a young earth to be distinctly biblical in your worldview. Those things are important. It's a great starting point. But the Bible does more than just that. It permeates every corner of your life, leaving nothing hidden from its sight. No secret sin or indulgence can be maintained by the one who has committed themselves to the word of God. And we, of course, know that a big part of what Paul is saying in these chapters is that the more you understand the gospel and the more you understand what Jesus accomplished in his substitutionary death for sinners and his resurrection, when you dive into that and when you embrace it by faith, you are launched into a mission of sharing that good news with other people. And you're part of the new creation that will one day become an eternal, physical, material reality on this earth. So not only is life being offered in salvation, but so is purpose and so is joy. And those who put their faith in Christ alone get all three. They are saved from the punishment of their sin and they will receive eternal life. They have the opportunity to live a meaningful life today, but one day they will be welcomed into the embrace of joy himself. Don't we want Jesus to return and make that happen? And if I'm describing something that you haven't experienced, or if you're unsure about your relationship with Jesus, you want to know more about that, I hope that you won't leave today without talking to myself or somebody else. Because there are so many people in this room that would love to open a Bible with you and show you how you can have a relationship with God through his son, Jesus. This offer is available. God wants you to have life, purpose, and joy. But there are also some here who have grown up in church or been around it for a long time, and your life really isn't that different. Your personal life and your priorities outside this building are not distinguishable from the unredeemed. In other words, you want the life, you'll take the joy now and then, but you've rejected the purpose. Your priorities haven't been drastically changed by what this book says, and that's not good. If that's you, you should be asking yourself some hard questions. Who is your life about? You or God? Is the mission of the church the purpose of your life? And what changes do you have to make so that God can get the most out of the few years that he has entrusted to you? Paul was living for the mission, and it changed a lot more than 90 minutes on a Sunday for him. He embraced as his purpose the manifestation of truth. And he ends verse 2 by saying that is this manifestation of truth that commends his ministry team to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So it doesn't matter what they say about him. It doesn't matter if they reject him because he is a preacher of the gospel. He is a herald, an ambassador, and a representative of the coming king, someone greater than him. Our commendation comes from God, and it comes by staying faithful to the word. So rather than hiding it, twisting it, adulterating it, Why not just communicate God's message in a straightforward and bold way? 
Here's why. We already know why. We're afraid. People reject it, don't they? That's why the third calling is so important. We're called to rely on God. Although the manifestation of truth has commended Paul to every man before God, not every man that he talks to comes to Christ. Why is that? Well, Paul answers in verse 3, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So what is the reason that some people don't accept the truth, even though it is plainly laid out and plainly revealed to them? According to this verse, they are blind. They can't see it. The gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. Satan, who is identified as the God of this world in verse 4, has blinded unbelievers. If you remember way back to chapter 2 of this letter, Paul referred to the gospel as an aroma, as a fragrance that some people smell and love, but some people smell, and to them it smells like death. He switches metaphors in chapter 3 so that he's no longer talking about an aroma that is smelt, but a light that is either seen or hidden. That's the transforming glory that we talked about in chapter 3. The beauty of God and the gospel being made visible. And Paul attempts to reveal that light with the clear manifestation of truth, but not everyone sees it because they're blinded by Satan. And at this point, I want to skip chapter 5. We'll come back to it, but I want to skip chapter 5 because there are parallels between verse 4 and verse 6. Look at verse 6 with me. For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Okay, let's look back again. Compare that with verse 4. In verse 4, they are blinded, quote, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And in verse 6, God has shown in our hearts, quote, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. All right, that's a lot to take in with just your ears. I get that. If you're lost, don't give up on me yet. I'm, go- I'm about to show you a visual representation of these two verses. Uh, this is inspired by a chart uh, in a book by John Piper called God is the Gospel. And just while I'm mentioning that, I think it's appropriate to give uh, some credit to some of the books that John Piper wrote in helping me understand a few verses in 2 Corinthians. God is the Gospel is one of those books Uh, He also wrote three others as a trilogy of sorts. They're called A Peculiar Glory, Reading the Bible Supernaturally, and Expository Exaltation. Um, He wrote these books to demonstrate what the Bible is, how we got the Bible, uh, why we can trust the Bible, how to study the Bible to reveal the glory of God, but also how to preach the Bible in order to reveal the glory of God. And I want to mention these partially as a recommendation, but also because they've really shaped my thinking on uh, three different verses in 2 Corinthians. Uh, Those three verses are operating in the background of those books, and uh, they are 3.18 and the two that we are looking at now, 4.4 and 4.6. So let's look at this chart that compares the two verses. In verse 4, Satan blinds to the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Okay. 
And then verse 6, God creates, so opposite there on that first one, God creates the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. You see how they're saying almost the exact same thing in a different order and with a different emphasis and focusing on different groups of people. The same reality, but for two different kinds of people. Those that are perishing, as verse 4 says, are blinded by Satan so that they can't see the transforming glory of the gospel. But verse 6 says that God has shown in the hearts of Paul, in the hearts of his ministry companions, in the hearts of those at Corinth who have accepted the gospel, God has shown in their hearts so that they can see the transforming glory of the gospel. And where do they see it? In the face of Christ, who is the image of God. So if the goal or if the purpose of life is to glorify God by making disciples, to let people see the glory. That's what our mission statement is, by the way. It's painted on the wall of our lobby. If that's the goal, to make God's name great, to make him known by more and more people, more and more disciples, well, how do people get to know God, according to these verses? Well, the verses say that Christ is the image of God, and that the glory of Christ is revealed in the gospel. The gospel that Satan is blinding to, but God is making visible. And this gospel, this message from God is preserved in the word of God that Paul just finished saying he is trying to manifest and not adulterate, twist, or hide. So do you see the flow in this passage from God the Father to Jesus to the gospel to the scripture? That flow is why Paul wants so badly to not let himself get in the way of his own preaching. He emphasizes this in verse 5, the verse between these two, by saying, we do not preach ourselves. We're not trying to get in the way. We're not trying to exalt ourselves. But who? But Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. So the goal of ministry is to focus on the word, as we already talked about, but also to rely on God because some people are blinded to the truth, and they need a miracle in order to see the light. So what do I mean they need a miracle? Why did I say it that way? Let me ask you a a trick question. I'm warning you that it's tricky, so maybe don't answer out loud. (laughs) Um, What was the first miracle that was performed through Jesus? Not turning water into wine. I, I did warn you that it was tricky. That's the first one that's mentioned in the Gospels. The first miracle was the creation of the world. Through Jesus, God created all things, Colossians tells us. And Paul compares the miracle of creation to the miracle of conversion. When he says in verse 6, For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, or let there be light, is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So Paul is comparing the conversion of a sinner to the creation of the world, just as the creation of the world took a miraculous work of God to accomplish, so also does it take a miraculous work of God to remove the veil of Satan so that someone can see the transforming light of the gospel. To truly see the gospel without that veil is to love the gospel and to be transformed by it. 
And the point of all of this is to show you that the third calling of a courageous ministry, we are called to rely on God, because only God can effectually reveal himself so that a sinner calls out to be saved. We were all blind until God called on us to see the light. We were all dead in our sins until God regenerated us. If you know Christ today, it's because you were chosen and called by him to see the light. Isn't that humbling? Doesn't it make you thankful? This concept ties nicely to the fact that Paul starts out the whole chapter by saying, we have this ministry as we received mercy. Our new life and mission can only be attributed to the work of God and the power of his sovereign choice to save some sinners. And with that, I would like to transition to some applicational thoughts regarding the three callings of our ministry, which should make us courageous. The three callings are to be fueled by mercy, focused on the word, and reliant upon God. We started off this morning by talking about fear and frustration that Paul was likely feeling or tempted to feel. Because of these three callings, he was able to overcome the fear of failure and continue in his life of ministry. So how do we do this? How do we adopt Paul's fearlessness in our lives? What is our next step toward having a courageous ministry? The answer is going to be a little different for each individual. Some of you are really focused on the word already in your personal life. You're in the Bible, meditating, memorizing. But because you do that, maybe you're arrogant and you're not actually fueled by mercy. You're fueled by superiority, maybe, maybe arrogance or pride. And there's, a, there's a subtle mindset that you would never say out loud, none of us would ever say out loud, but we, we act sometimes as if being one of the Christians that reads their Bible means we're one of the better Christians, better than other Christians. There's lots of stories in the Bible about religious people who think they're better than broken people. Think about the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee thought he had something to offer God. The tax collector knew that he had nothing. Which one was closer to the kingdom? Not the religious one, the broken one. Some of you might need to repent of your religion and admit your brokenness to God. While you're at it, you should confess that sin to some people in the church as well because growth happens in community. And maybe that describes some of us, but what I think is more likely for most of us is that we aren't actually giving proper focus to the word. Because being broken is no virtue if you don't go to the great physician for healing. Being broken is no virtue if you're not seeking the grace that is freely offered. And that grace is available to us through the word. We need a renewed focus on the word. And this needs to happen individually and corporately. As a church, we need to prioritize fellowship around the word. It doesn't mean we can't have fun. It doesn't mean the men can't go on a camping trip in a few weeks. But if God's word doesn't come up on that camping trip, may as well stay home, right? Just like we don't come to this room on Sunday mornings to sing silly songs and talk about our feelings and ourselves, 
we come to this room to talk about God and to sing about God. We place ourselves under the authority of the word. We need to grow in this. We need to start evaluating the things that we do as a church based on how well they proclaim the word and manifest the truth. That's the standard. It's not about how much we like it. It's not about how long we have done it. It's not about how much fun it is. Is it the best way to proclaim the word or not? If wisdom says that it's not, then let's adapt. But let's do it together as a team. This renewed focus of the word also needs to happen individually. One of the days of our vacation Bible school had an emphasis on teaching children about the importance of what they allow into their mind. The goal was for them to see the importance of a a thought life that is saturated with biblical truth. We also need to do this as adults. Our minds should be filled every day with Bible. If we're going to have something to share with others, we need to be full of the Bible ourselves. It's simple, but not easy. We all have different things pulling us away from our devotional time with God and from our focus on the word. And I know different people have different schedules. Different schedules need different strategies. There's not a one-size-fits-all for how to focus on the word in your life. But for some of us, it is as simple as contemplating the phrase, no Bible, no breakfast. No Bible, no TV. No Bible, no social media. YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. Nothing wrong with it. There's a time for it, but it's not before you've read your Bible. And if I can be blunt, I think I can. Some of us need to throw our TV out the window. Uh Right? Nothing wrong with the TV. But there's a problem if we allow the TV to pull us away from the Word. But TVs aren't a problem for everybody. Some of you just have young kids. You're crazy busy. Most of us know how much time and attention that requires. You can't throw your kids out the window. (laughs) But stage of life is not an argument for not filling your life with God's word. You're the parent. It's okay to be in charge. It's 100% okay to put a child in a room, tell them they need to stay there because you need to read your Bible. It really is. It's 100% okay to let a child cry themselves to sleep so that you can pray with your spouse or you can read your Bible or so you can get to bed at a good enough time so you can get up early and read your Bible then. I know this is hard. We have a lot of young parents in this church. I'm one of them. It's hard to raise disciplined children and to have orderly households. Men, our wives, need our help and our leadership in this area. There are unique struggles with motherhood. Each family has to figure out unique solutions so that everyone has time to focus on the word. But a guiding principle is this. Don't let a small child run your house and your schedule. God made them so resilient. He really did. They are tougher than mom imagines sometimes. And they get more tough really fast, but not without dad's leadership. As long as we're talking about children, let's talk about infusing the Bible into their life as well. 
we spend a lot of time focusing on this as a church, by the way. So many of our programs are focused on children, and rightly so. Mealtimes are a great opportunity to read to children. It's good to pray with your kids before bed. I think it's good for dad to do it a lot of the time, especially if he has less contact with them during the day. I know this room has people who don't have kids, people who aren't married, and uh, I've spent a lot of time talking about family life. I get that. But I want that to illustrate for all of us the importance of focusing on the word because everyone's busy. But if we aren't Bible people to our core, we have no message for the world. Remember that stream in our passage from God the Father to God the Son to the gospel to the words of Scripture. You get to know God by getting to know Christ. You get to know Christ by meditating on the gospel. The gospel is revealed in the book that he has preserved for us. The Bible is how God has revealed himself. You can't love God if you don't know God as he presents himself. And all of this work and strategy and planning is undergirded with our third application, our third calling of reliance upon God. He is the one who opens eyes. Just as he said, let there be light at the beginning of the world, so also does he open the eyes of every sinner that he has called to himself so that they see the gospel as glorious and as good. Relying on God does not diminish our own effort in the least. It enhances our effort because we have no idea when God is going to work, when he is going to open eyes, and we want to be ready when he does, and it's our honor and it's our joy to be used as courageous ministers of his gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would use us. We ask that you would create desires in us that can only be explained by your transforming work in our life. Continue to give us glimpses of your mercy so that we can be merciful to others. Help us to take radical measures in our homes and in our church so that we can build our life and our schedule and our programs around the Bible. And help us to trust you and trust your timing. We know that Jesus laid down his life for his sheep, and we want to play our role in getting that message to the world. It's an honor to be used by you. Help us to want that. Help us to want to be used. We ask this in your son's name.